This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. We ought not deal in the soft bigotry of low expectations for the Palestinians. The words of Sergeant Benjamin Anthony. Hello, my name's Johnny Gould, and welcome to a regular podcast focused on Jewish and Israeli issues. This podcast series will build into a body of contemporary snapshots of Jewish life in Israel and the diaspora. I'm ambitious for this. I need your help. I need you to share this via Facebook, Twitter, and email to help access the biggest possible audience. And I want to devote time and expense too. So donations via my Patreon page to support my work are most welcome. Patreon.com slash Johnny Gould. And thank you very much. The scale of ambition is reflected in my first guests. Two men, soldiers of the IDF, who want to bring peace to the Middle East and the world by creating a Palestinian state and in the process make Israel stronger, restoring Egypt's fortunes, reducing the influence and destructive force of Iran and its proxies, uniting the left, right and centre-minded and breaking the impasse of the two-state solution. Sergeant Benjamin Anthony and Brigadier General Amir Avivi are my guests and I caught up with them in central London. First of all, have a listen to this introduction to the new state solution. By merging the Gaza Strip with a repurposed portion of the Sinai Peninsula, a new, thriving, independent, sovereign and viable state can be created for all Palestinians. Egypt and Israel could guarantee respect for and defense of the borders of the new state. Israel, willing Arab nations and the international community could invest in the development of the new Palestinian state and Egypt as the donor state. Technological and logistical support in areas such as water and agriculture could make this desert bloom. The new state's Mediterranean coastline would offer rich opportunities for trade, commerce and tourism. The new state would affix its own migration policy so that anyone wishing to voluntarily relocate there would receive generous absorption and economic packages, setting them and their families on a pathway toward a far brighter future. Israel would retain defensible borders that would not put it at risk and would preserve its Jewish and democratic character. Palestinians would have a state with a single, contiguous territory within stable and recognized borders, with room for population growth, economic prosperity, and national pride. The forced transfer of any population of either peoples would be avoided. Some men see things as they are and say why. I dream things that never were and say why not. Gaza is in the middle of a crisis. Uh, polls within the Gaza Strip speak to the fact that around up to 50 to 60 percent actually want to leave the Gaza Strip. There's massive unemployment, underemployment, and a growing militancy, and uh, an increase in fanaticism that even Hamas is struggling to uh, to quell. And as a consequence of that, Hamas is in desperate need, desperate need of bringing about a situation which can better the lives of the Gazan people, which can give them an economic basis to thrive and actually to 
legitimize its own presence there in the Gaza Strip because if you look at its achievements of late, it's been a series of failures. They've not moved anything forward. Hamas said at the time that in response to the opening of the embassy, they would have quarter of a million Gazans storming the fence with a view to moving into the state of Israel. Now, the end result of that was that they had approximately 20,000 at the peak of these demonstrations at the fence. Now, 20,000 is not an insignificant number, but if you look at the demographic, that's the 18 to 35-year-old demographic, in other words, a younger generation of the Gazan people. That's with all of the financial inducement, all of the duress, all of the forcing of people to the border fence, and the number was not a staggering number. Now, what we take from that is that the next generation of Palestinian Arabs, including those in the Gaza Strip, have given up the ghost of listening to Hamas rhetoric about the destruction of the states of Israel, about coming back to Jerusalem, and in actual fact are looking to put food on their table, raise their families, have sovereignty, have independence, and build a country in the image that they wish to see it take form. General, do you believe a civil war in Gaza could overtake our diplomatic efforts? Well, it could happen. There are different forces in Gaza, some of them even more extreme than uh, Hamas. Every little child is Gaza, in Gaza is being radicalized from the age of three to hate Jews, to hate the Western world. So if we don't take action now, if we don't bring a new initiative that will bring hope for the people of Gaza, we are looking in the future to an area of two million jihadists. So we need to take action now. The Palestinian Authority is more acceptable a partner than Hamas, clearly. I was at Chatham House to hear Prime Minister Netanyahu say as much. We would like Hamas to go towards the PA position rather than the other way around. But the jurisdictive partition of Hebron into three parts alone shows hearts and minds need to be changed there too. General, what is the reality of Arabs relocating to new state, part of the strategy of keeping Israel in a Jewish milieu. We see in Gaza, because of the situation, that about 50% of the people of Gaza would like to emigrate from Gaza elsewhere. In this sense, they are not different from all the Muslim world who currently is emigrating north to Europe. Many of the Palestinians would like to do so as well. In the West Bank, the economical situation is much better. Therefore, the numbers are lower, but still 25% of the Palestinians in the West Bank say that if they have the economic possibility, they would like to emigrate. Now, if we bring them a bright future in a new successful Palestinian state in Gaza and the Northern Sinai Peninsula, I think that definitely there will be people who will see their future with, within this Palestinian state on the shores of the Sinai Peninsula. I'd like to, I, I want to supplement what the general said because there are some real bedrock principles about the new state solution that ought to be put out there in case anybody's wondering. One of those central principles is that there must not be any forced transfer of either population, not the Jewish population in Judea and Samaria, not the Muslim population in Judea and Samaria, no other population. So the question is how do you achieve that? We look at financial incentives that are voluntarily accepted by individual residents to move and to build their lives in the new state. And 
The reason that we're optimistic about that is twofold. First and foremost, the numbers that General Avivi cited in the Gaza Strip are indicative of a collapsing economy. As a result of that, people in the area of 50 to 60 percent wish to leave the Strip. If you go and if you look at the West Bank, the population there, as a result of a better economy, the numbers are considerably lower. So we say if there is even more economic advantage in the new state, it's likely that that will be the magnet for the Palestinian Arabs, whether they be in the Gaza Strip or whether they be uh, in Judea and Samaria, the West Bank. So that's the first. The second thing is another principle of this idea is that it seeks not to impose upon the Palestinian Arabs a standard that the Jewish people themselves would not live by, would not accept. And if one looks at the inducement of migration to a new country, there's no finer example probably in history than the story of the ingathering of the Jewish exiles to our homeland. And I want to personalize this for for your listeners. I am a Jew who was born, raised, educated in the United Kingdom. After graduating from university, I moved to the state of Israel. I saw a better life for myself, potentially over there. Nobody forced me to transfer out of the United Kingdom. What did occur was that the state of Israel offered me a financial package to receive me into that land. That went directly to me, not via government to government, and therefore there was no corruption. It wasn't riches, but it gave me economic viability. And what I would want your listeners to understand is that that story is not unique to me. It's actually the story not of tens of thousands, not of hundreds of thousands, but actually of millions of Jews who, for various reasons, saw a better life for themselves in the Middle East, in the state of Israel, and therefore moved and built up that country. Now, we believe the very same standard can be applied to the Palestinian Arabs. We ought not to deal in the soft bigotry of low expectations and believe that they are entrenched within ultra-religious or extreme ideas, but actually they just want a better life for themselves. Are you playing catch-up with Johnny Gould's Jewish State? I've had the pleasure of some really great guests. How about Douglas Murray? Israel is a rare country in the West uh, in that it does buck many of the trends. There isn't a a fertility rate problem in in Israel. Um, For instance, there there is in in most European countries. There is a strong feeling of nationhood and of the depths that the country needs to call upon in order to unite its people. And Hillel Neuer, whose UN Watch keeps check on the excesses and mission creep of the UN human rights in Geneva. The challenges are great. They're not going away. I am concerned by the cultural revolution that we've experienced in America in the past five years, the known to some of the woke revolution, where there's a kind of a McCarthyism. If you say something, it could be cancelled and fired from your university, from your corporation, uh, from uh, journalists. And often it's, uh, it's an anti-liberalism. So that, that, to be honest, really, really scares me because we need our democracies to be healthy, to be honest, to be, to be truth-tellers. And so I am deeply concerned. If you like Johnny's regular podcasts, think about making a donation at either patreon.com slash Gould or buy him a coffee. He loves coffee. ko-fi.com slash Gould.
So let's talk about the demography of what it is to be a Palestinian in the 21st century. It's well known that the Palestinian Christian population has fled Judea and Samaria in big number for a new life, largely in Santiago in Chile, a Catholic country. Within 20 years, their children will be Hispanic. They'll be intermarriage. They're Christians together. So to project a concept of national return as we Jews understand it, is that realistic? The South Americans won't be coming back a generation or two later, will they? Well, I think that the same question goes for Jews in the United States. I believe that many of these Jews, millions probably, won't make Aliyah and won't come to live in Israel, unfortunately. The Middle East is conducting ethnical cleansing of Christians. Christians all over the Middle East are being decapitated, crucified, burned alive, and kicked out of every country in the Middle East. It's amazing that the Christian world is not doing anything about it. So I don't see the Christian uh, population uh, striving in the Middle East. The only place they are striving actually is Israel. They are doing very well in Israel. And they are part of our society. I would imagine that mostly Muslims would go there and not Christians. Christians would stay probably in Europe and uh, in South America. There are Jews who move from the diaspora communities to Israel, but would never live in Jerusalem. There are Jews who move from the diaspora to Israel, but would never live outside Jerusalem. And what I'm trying to express and demonstrate is that the Jewish people are not monolithic. So, General, it looks like the new state would be a Sunni Muslim majority country. Given threats within that community too, isn't Israel a danger of being sucked into defending itself inside Gaza again? Here we go again, back in as an occupying force in the fledgling new state. That is a threat, isn't it, that we must stop? Well, this threat is no different from the Lebanese border or the border with Syria or with Jordan or with Egypt. But this is a threat we can cope with. A Palestinian state in Judea and Samaria is not a threat Israel can cope with in the future. So when we need to find a solution, we, we must make sure that this is a solution we can live with. And if this country would become an enemy, we can cope with it. This is the issue with no problem. Now, today in Gaza, you have two million people in one of the narrowest and smallest places in the world. And these people, once you enlarge the area and they have a large country, they will move south, many of them. So the issue of Gaza being so overpopulated they will be solved. They will have a lot to lose because they will have a new economy, new life, prosperity. And they will be surrounded by Israel and Egypt that will secure the borders. If you establish a state, to come to, again, your question, in Judea and Samaria, you do so with two main security risks for the state of Israel. Actually, three main security risks. Number one, they would have topographical advantage. The general can speak much more to this because they would be on the, the hills of Judea and Samaria overlooking the main population areas of the state of Israel. Number two, from the western border of the Palestinian states in Judea and Samaria, there would be nothing more than nine miles to the western frontier of the states of Israel, which of course is the Mediterranean coastline at our narrowest point. And the third is that in this epoch of failing states, were the 
Palestinian states in Judea and Samaria to meet not with success but with failure, the states of Israel would have to its eastern flank a corridor of potentially pernicious states from this failed Palestinian state to Jordan, to Iraq, to Iran, to Afghanistan and to Pakistan. Now those are the three considerations. Take the new state solution now and consider that it's anchored in the Gaza Strip with contiguity into the Sinai Peninsula. Number one, there are no states on either side of it that would constitute a danger to the state of Israel. If you, if it becomes belligerent, Israel can lock it up, Egypt can lock it up and defend themselves against that. Number two, the Negev Desert, unlike the nine-mile stretch of land at our narrowest point in the case of the two-state solution, in the new state solution affords us strategic depth to defend ourselves in the case of belligerence and invasion, which is very unlikely in the modern era. The third is topographical. Topographically, both on the Israeli side and on the Egyptian side, it would be the exact inversion of the two-state paradigm. Namely, the Israelis would have topographical advantage in southern Israel looking down at the lowlands of the new state, and the Egyptians would equally have that topographical advantage looking down at the new state from Egypt. What that means is that they can afford to take a risk, and it's a much more manageable risk. It's not perfect, but it's a much more manageable risk than is the case in the two-state paradigm. General uh, Benjamin mentioned uh, security from the Negev. Perhaps you'd like to expand on that. Well, I commanded this border for two years as a brigade commander. And indeed, as Benjamin said, the mountains of the Negev are very high. They are even higher than Judea and Samaria. And they completely overlook the lowlands of the Sinai Peninsula. So Israel can really secure the border from its own side. Most of the Israeli bases are in the south. And we are able to deploy forces very, very fast if needed. So we completely control this area and and it's easy to secure. It's not like Judea and Samaria. Now the depths of the Negev and the fact that the big cities are far away, this is a big issue that uh, enables the Israelis uh, to be safe and have the army on the borders, defending the borders if needed. Should we talk about Australia now, who are joining our friends in the United States in declaring a little bit of Jerusalem? as our eternal capital. What is the settlement deal with Jerusalem for the new state solution? Because there's going to be a few objections down the road. Let's just say this is possibly the most fluid part of your future diplomacy. Jerusalem is obviously a key issue. What's unknown to most people is that the arrangement between Israelis and Palestinians for Jerusalem is actually not between Israelis and Palestinians. It's between Israel and Jordan. And we actually view the status quo as in need of preservation, as very, very positive. And we would actually leave Jerusalem as untouched. We would leave it precisely as it is now. That is not something which is in any way impacted by President Trump's decision, by Australia's decision, or or anyone else's decisions. Of course, we welcome them moving their embassies to Jerusalem. But the arrangement would remain the same. There's no reason to tackle that issue or to complicate that issue uh, beyond what has remained a solid status quo uh, since it was founded and since it came about. Indeed, General, I uh, go down the Via Dolorosa past a George VI British post box, down the stairs, and there I see the Al-Aqsa and Dome of the Rock before I observe the Kotel. In religious freedom, everyone, Armenians, Catholics, Coptics, Muslims, Sunni, Shia, Baha'i, everyone... Uh, can um, point to wherever they want to point to in peace and quietitude. Um, I presume 
that, uh, as Benjamin says, General, this is an area of the new state solution that doesn't need any more definition. Jerusalem is the most important city in the world. It's important for Jews, for Muslims, and for Christians alike. And it's open for all of them. Now, when talking about Jerusalem, there are two layers. Uh, the religious layer and the fact that it's the capital of a state. Now, talking about religion, we understand that Jerusalem is also important for Muslims. And today, we have an agreement with Jordan that represents the Muslim world and is in charge of Al-Aqsa. Now, if the Jordanians feel that they need to give the Palestinians the key to Al-Aqsa, this is an inner issue of the Muslim world. By the way, I don't see the Jordanians doing that. But it's not an Israeli issue at all. It's a Muslim issue. Who deals with Al-Aqsa? The moment it's the Jordanians, the Waqf, I believe in the future it will be the Jordanians with the Waqf, we would expect the capital of this state to be within the state, or it will be the first state ever in the history of mankind that will have a capital not within the state. So obviously the Palestinians will have to choose where to build this new capital, and the Muslim issue remains the Muslim issue. It's not a Palestinian issue. Al-Aqsa is not a Palestinian issue. It's a Muslim issue. And they should talk among themselves who will deal with this issue. On the issue of Jerusalem, I, w- I would urge everybody to look at events and not at rhetoric with regard to the Palestinian Arabs. Because for years, we've been told that if the United States of America should recognize Jerusalem as the capital city of the states of Israel, there would be uproar and, revol- and, and revolt and so on and so forth. Now, now let's talk about what actually occurred. What actually occurred was Donald Trump said that he recognizes Jerusalem as the capital of the state of Israel. Mahmoud Abbas of the Palestinian Authority said to his people, to his soldiers, if you like, and I'm using that word descriptively, not literally, who are, again, the 18 to 35-year-old demographic. He said, I want revolts, I want days of rage, I want an intifada, I want demonstrations in the street. And the net outcome of that was basically nothing. They didn't riot en masse, they didn't have a sustained intifada, they didn't have anything even approaching that. So it's very easy for people outside of... Israel and the Palestinian territories to be very, very strident, but they ought not to be more strident than are the Palestinians themselves. The Palestinians themselves in Judea and Samaria, I say, by way of their inaction, after Trump said that he recognized it, they have again given at the ghost of spilling their blood for the rhetoric of an old, illegitimate, frankly powerless, impotent leader in Mahmoud Abbas. It's time to deal with that generation, and I think that that generation prioritizes economics over religious religious rhetoric. Hearts and minds to be one as we attempt to build peace with our geopolitical partners. The biggest hearts and minds to win, I guess, are the Egyptians, who will be giving up perhaps most, but in the name of great diplomatic victory. They'll play a massive role in this. Their prestige as Islam's leading nation has been eroded inside 20 years. Donald Trump didn't even visit them as Saudi, Qatar, Turkey and Iran overtake them as the region's leading powers. Saudi have often kept the lights on in Cairo, literally and metaphorically. In many ways, this is a partnership with Saudi and Oman as it is the Palestinians, isn't it, General? Well, let me start by saying that I don't believe in hearts and minds. I don't believe in winning hearts and minds. I believe in interests, 
and I believe that the Middle East has completely changed, a new interest emerged. People talk about how big this change is. The general absolutely is correct. This is based on interests. I mean, I mean what, what more can show how interest-based realpolitik is than what's going on around Khashoggi between the United States and Saudi Arabia right now? So let's talk about another couple of interests. First of all, security. Egypt has a real security imperative with the presence of Isaac, of ISIS, Islamic Jihad and so forth in the Sinai Peninsula that Israel is already helping it to limit and to reduce. We can help more. Uh, in addition to, and, and those, incidentally, those bodies, those groups, those terror organizations see Egypt as the soft target. They do not see Israel as the soft target. Sisi is aware of that. Uh, in addition to the security imperative, is the economic imperative which of course dovetails into security because if there's one event that Sisi will have observed and learned from it's the fact that an underemployed disenfranchised young population within the borders of the Muslim world and the Arab world today is not one that will sit still inactive and accept its fate and its plight it's actually one that is very restive and that has shown form of which Sisi is a product, incidentally, and his presence is a product, to overthrow those who rule over it in the event that they do not have economic viability. So when you talk about Saudi Arabia, that's exactly the role that we look for. If Egypt should be the donor state, giving the most important part of all of this, the actual territory for a state, then you would have investment from Saudi Arabia. Then you would have investment from the European Union. You would have investment from the United States of America. You would also have investment from the State of Israel. And so we actually believe that it would be very, very difficult for obdurate states to be more strident, again to use that word, than the Egyptians and, and the Palestinian Arabs. In other words, if they say, we want this plan, this is for the good, the common good of our people, very difficult for international uh, bodies and governments to say, well, no, no, we think there's a different way. And so that's why Egypt has these interests at play. Egypt is going to uh, donate uh, these lands. Who's going to pay for it? It's not the Mexicans. Well, not the Mexicans, but uh, I think that what's interesting about this idea is the fact that since we're talking about an area along the shores of the Sinai Peninsula, beautiful shores that today are not worth anything. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of interest from the, from the private sector to develop this area. So a lot of money will come from the private sector, which is completely different from any other solution. And also I think that there are a lot of interest from uh, the European Union, the United States, the Arab world to solve this issue. Now, we have to understand what the Sunni Arab world is dealing with. They are dealing with two big issues. One is the fact that the United States and President Trump talked about it uh, a few weeks ago, doesn't need any more oil from the Middle East. So the Middle East is becoming less and less important for the Western world. And this is something that worries them a lot because they are losing their importance in the global arena, and they need to win this importance back. The other issue is that the Sunni Arab world is dealing with the biggest existential threats they had in years, and I'm talking about Iran. And since they want to deal with Iran, they want to create a coalition with Israel and the United States and the European Union 
to isolate Iran and to win the fight against Iran. So in this sense, for many years, the Palestinians have been a tool used by the Arab world in their fight against Israel. But now they need Israel. They want to get close to Israel and to the United States in the fight against Iran. And suddenly the Palestinians became a liability. And they want to take this issue off the table. They want a solution. And we are bringing a solution that is a win-win for all sides. Everybody gains from this solution. Egypt, the Arab world, the Palestinians themselves, and of course also Israel. This is a win-win game. On this issue, it's, it's really very, very important to, to know that General Avivian and myself, we're not alone in this project. We have a list of experts who stand behind it. Uh, and one such expert is um, Nehemia Sokal. And you can review him on the New State Solution website. But Nehemia Sokal calls for the building up of this state in the BOT mode, which is build, operate, transfer. So to, to talk to General Avivi's point, the private sector would build the infrastructure, the economic base required. They would operate it and ultimately transfer it back to the state. Now, in addition to that, there's something much more important. The two-state solution would put the Palestinian Arab state in a landlocked area, Judea and Samaria or the West Bank. As a result of that, there would be very few natural resources from which they can build an, eco an economy. The hope is that the Palestinian Arabs will follow the example of the state of Israel and become a great startup nation, technological industry and so on and so forth. Now, we say maybe they will and maybe they won't. There's actually nothing that looks like what the state of Israel has done in the tech sector. So it's very difficult to put all of one's faith in the viability of an idea such as that. So if there's an e economy that's based purely on tech and startups and so forth, and that fails, what you would have in the two-state paradigm is you would have, in the best-case scenario, a client state. In the worst-case scenario, a failed state. We don't want that. When you build a state in the Gaza Strip into the Sinai Peninsula, what you have there immediately is you have the opportunity afforded by way of the coastline for import, export, trade, commerce, hospitality, all industries that the indigenous peoples have proven themselves absolutely expert at throughout millennia. In addition to that, there's the Ready Works program that would be joined by a Ready Work force. We've spoken about the underemployment. What you would have is you would have these underemployed, unemployed citizens of the Gaza Strip coming into the Sinai Peninsula, building homes, communities, hotels, resorts and so forth, but not for Israelis to live in, not for Egyptians to live in, but for them to live in. And, and, and that is a rare opportunity indeed, and that, that gives hope for viability economically. To expand on what you said, uh, General David Petraeus, uh, last week I went to a discussion. He said the U.S. pumps 11 million barrels of oil per day and has overtaken Saudi Arabia as the world's leading oil producer inside six years. How far are you guys down the road? Now, I know you've been to the Houses of Parliament and talked to interested parliamentarians. You've been to the Congress. We have briefed appropriate individuals in the United States from the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, from the Congress, on a bipartisan, bicameral basis. Uh, we have also briefed members of the British Parliament, and we have briefed members of the British House of Lords. 
In addition to that, we've also undertaken a whole series of lectures throughout preeminent academic institutions at the graduate and doctoral level in the United States, in Germany, uh, in the United Kingdom, and so forth. And we see that there is a real, real appetite for a new, fresh idea, incidentally, particularly among the left of center populations that can bring about an end to the conflict between Israelis and Palestinians. You have to keep in mind that nothing has a greater track record, or few things have a greater track record of failure than the Oslo process by this point in time. This is a process that has not borne fruit. It's left a trail of distraction in its wake. People recognize that, those who've heard of it, but on the level of the uh, graduate students and those who are minded towards public service and running for elected office and so forth, most of these people were not even born during the seminal handshake between Yasser Arafat and Yitzhak Rabin. They don't remember this as being the be-all and end-all for a better future between Israelis and Palestinian Arabs. What they want to see is they want to see a real resolution. Where it is, how it is, along what lines it is, is largely unimportant to them. What they have an appetite for is a proposal that breaks the paradigm and it says, if we look at this anew through a different lens, we can actually better the lives of everybody. And that is why they attach themselves to the new state solution. So there are certain areas we're able to speak to. There are other areas where it behooves us not to develop this uh, publicly at this stage. But I can tell you it's gone in front of the right people. It's being considered by the right people. We cannot sit here and tell you that it's been adopted by those people, but it's certainly part of the calculus of those individuals. Benjamin, General, Kolha Kovod, I wish you both the very best of luck. This is a truly giant idea, and I hope that this proposal, which may take the rest of your lifetime, is something that enriches you and brings you ultimately huge success. Gentlemen, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.